Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, ask your question or leave a comment on our voicemail at 800 815 Five six eight two zero, and we might just include your message in an upcoming show. The next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com/deals. Each week, we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying, from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com/deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Ginny Corso. Ginny is a cyclist and R&D scientist who has studied exercise, nutrition, and physiology through various undergraduate, graduate, and PhD programs. She's also a licensed USA cycling coach and has written many articles for single tracks on topics including fitness, nutrition, and travel. Thanks for joining us, Ginny. Hi, no problem, Jeff. This is wonderful. Thank you. So how did you first get into cycling and mountain biking? actually wrote about this in a single tracks article on Chico <laughs> a while back. <laughs> I kind of attest it to a mix of BMXing in middle school and high school with the group of friends that, you know, I had growing up. And then I kind of lost that in college and, you know, I went into the military and then I ended up leaving active duty um, and moving to Chico, California back in 2011. Mm-hmm. And I was running a lot. I was really fit um, because of you know my my time in the military, and then I ended up getting an injury and hurting my foot. And one of my my first friends there, Shirley, she introduced me to two guys, Tom and Colin, who had been mountain biking forever, and mm-hmm. they kind of got they got me into it. They introduced me into the sport, and you know, for me with a hurt a hurt foot, I had a stress fracture in my foot. It, it was something that didn't bother my foot, and then something I could also joy, you know, with the adventurous part and then maintaining my fitness and things like that. And I, I just kind of dove in and, you know, I, I found my group of friends there and I, I never looked back on anything else. (laughs) I think it was the sense of community in the, in the sport, something I was used to, you know, in the military and in other sports I had done. It was, you know, a great sense of people within the mountain biking community. And it was a, it was a really good way to absorb life through the outdoors and then the community of Chico. And it was just, it was a great place to live, and I feel like it was a nice culmination of all the things I was looking for, you know, based on my my kind of lifestyle and things I was interested in and and whatnot. So it was it was kind of a perfect storm of things, I guess, that happened. <laughs> yeah, it's got you've got it all in your story. You know, you've got the outdoors, you got community, and and then also the fitness aspect of it. Right. Did your passion for the sport sort of lead you into your later studies and your career? Uh, within nutrition and physiology, or was it something else that drew you into sort of science and and those types of things? I think it was a a combination of a couple things. I always had a really big affinity for chemistry growing Hmm. up. My my great-grandfather was a chemist. I found that I really enjoyed chemistry and biology in high school. 
thought about studying it for my undergraduate degree. And then instead of being, you know, an 18 year old, like, Oh, I'm really good at this. It was more, <laughs> I tested out of this. I'm going to go into something else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think getting into sport and in fitness and in the military, and then being a really large fan of bikes growing up and cycling and the adventurous part, traveling around with my parents, mm-hmm. it was just a, a big part of, of growing up with my dad. And then, you know, I kind of coached soldiers. I got into helping some of the soldiers that struggled, you know, with their physical fitness aspects. Mm. That kind of got me interested in, in the coaching aspect. And then when I, when I left, I started grad school in taking chemistry classes for pharmacy school, actually. And I, mm-hmm. when I moved to Chico and, and started taking um, some of the prerequisites I needed for pharmacy school, I ended up meeting two faculty there, uh, Jack Azevedo and Steve Henderson, both exercise physiologists. And again, that was another perfect storm moment where I'm like, oh man, I can nerd out on metabolism and biochemistry, apply it to sport, fitness, and physiology, and then become a better bike rider, pass the information along to students and other athletes. And I totally just found my calling. I think it was, yeah, I think it was just, again, a a wonderful a wonderful setting and time in my life where things kind of fell into place. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool how you're able to bring those two together. So one of your research interests is exploring the differences in exercise metabolism between men and women. So I'm really curious about this. I mean, biologically speaking, do men and women have significantly different nutritional needs? Well, it's, it's kind of complicated when you look at it, you can look at it from just a basic metabolic or physiology point of view. And then you can apply research and the concepts going along with exercise physiology. Mm-hmm. So evolutionarily, um, there is a reproductive requirement for body fat in females to remain, you know, 12 to 15% or higher um, in, in a healthy range because women need that to biologically activate estrogens for reproduction and to maintain bone mineral density. So it's really difficult for women to lose fat and alter their body composition in any lower percentages, one, because it's unhealthy and genetics just kind of doesn't allow for that. There's a slew of researchers that got into researching all of this from an exercise point of view. Um, Ron, Ron Courtright, Ann Friedlander, Mark Tarnopolsky, uh, Greg Henderson, Glenn Gazer, um, some of the more notable metabolic researchers that looked at sex differences and fuel use during and after exercise. So, and this does all tie into nutritional needs because, you know, how you fuel your body and then what, you know, what type of exercise you're doing based on male, if you're a male or a female, it does change. So Ron Courtright did an animal study a, a while back looking at, he used rats, but animal studies are the foundation for human studies, so they're completely applicable in that sense. He took two groups of rats, males and, and females, and found after nine, re, nine weeks of self-selected exercise, the females had a higher caloric deficit, so they burned more calories during their self-selected exercise, yet the males still had a lower body fat mass overall. So that kind of was a springboard into other researchers um, looking into, okay, why, why is this happening? Yeah. Um, does it have to do with hormones or catecholamines, other, other, other hormones that could come into play that dictate, you know, fuel breakdown, fat mass maintenance, and things like that? So Mark Tarnopolsky, for example, he, he looked at fuel use during, during exercise, uh, and Friedlander as well. Mm-hmm. He did an interesting study where 
it was known that females had an increased fat use during exercise. So they like to self-select using fat more than males would in comparison. Hmm. They both spare glycogen use, but females tend to spare glycogen breakdown or, you know, glucose use more than males. So he did an interesting study where he gave 17 beta estradiol or the biologically active form of estrogen to men Mm -hmm. uh, to see if he can mimic female fat use during exercise. So more fat burn, less amino acid use, so protein breakdown and glycogen use. And he he found that there was no alteration between male and female glycogen use, but the men did tend to change after uh, estrogen administration the amount of fat they were using. So they did burn more fat. So it did tend to mimic more female tendency for fuel use during the same same type of exercise. So you know, looking at certain studies like that, we can kind of dictate that biologically higher amount of estrogen that females produce kind of dictates female fuel selection, specifically fat and, and fatty, free fatty acid use, lipid breakdown um, in women during exercise. Hmm. So you could take that further and, and uh, researchers started looking at, okay, what about, what about post-exercise during recovery, immediate, and then, you know, uh, over the course of 24 hours or a few days. So there is a concept you're probably familiar with, EPOC or excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. So that's the period of time when you're, say, you go on a bike ride for an hour. You're going to have this period of time where you need to replenish anything that you use. So any glycogen stores that were broken down to release glucose for fuel use, same with fat or any amino acids that may have been used to convert into glucose or things like that for exercise. So you can do work. Catecholamine release is is important as a part of to dictate what fuels are used and what it, what is being replenished afterwards. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a part of anabolism or replenishing the stores that were used during exercise. So researchers got into that to see if there was a sex difference between men and women. So Orange Theory, for example, has this theory, the fitness studios, mm-hmm. yeah, where. Um, they kind of jump on this concept saying, okay, you have a window after exercise where you're going to burn an excess amount of fat. Mm -hmm. So there is a difference between men and women. Mark Tarnopolsky, Greg Henderson, uh, a few of the researchers at uh, UC Berkeley dove into this, finding that there is a major difference between men and women in duration, Hmm. regardless of duration of exercise and intensity. So they looked at a variety of intensities and durations uh, of exercise and found that men will have up to 24 hours of excess fat burn versus women, which kind of caps at about three hours and then it goes back to resting metabolic rate. So that's a, that's a big difference. Um, So you can't, you can't apply the theory of, oh, I'm going to, if I exercise, I'm going to continue to burn fat for a certain amount of time, the same to men and women because, because it is different. And it kind of goes back to that need to re-esterify and store fat for women for reproduction. So that whole evolutionary dictation of fat mass maintenance in women. So differences in nutritional needs. Um, absolutely there is. So there are six different classes of nutrients and you can, you can look at, you can look at it from a macronutrient standpoint. So carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, and then also a micronutrient need. So vitamins, minerals, and then you have the need for water and, and phytochemicals and other things like that, that we know are beneficial and, and necessary to continue living essentially, let alone do sport. So in general, men need more macronutrients, basically because they have more mass overall. They're just bigger than women um, and generally more lean muscle tissue mass. Therefore, they have a higher basal metabolic rate. Healthy men do in comparison to women hmm. because of these two things. So they're going to need more calories overall just to sustain life day to day. Yeah. 
uh, throw in physical activity on top of that, and then you know you're going to have a higher caloric difference there. Mm-hmm. It's it's understood that women may need more micronutrients, calcium, iron, folic acid in particular. Healthy women, uh, a higher need for um, uh, folic acid, folic acid in reproductive age. Uh, iron women are more predisposed to anemia than than males, so iron is important. Uh, postmenopausal women, especially due to less estrogen, calcium needs are higher to maintain bone mineral density. So you have that little bit of difference there between men and women's needs for micronutrients. For the athlete, I think it depends on the purpose and the goal, including a body composition goal. So if you have a you know men men a man versus a woman that is trying to change your body composition, that's an athlete. It's going to be more difficult for the woman to lower her body composition, right. especially when you're taking into power you know power to weight ratio and thing and things like that. There is going to be a healthy threshold that women shouldn't cross mm-hmm. in the scientific, I guess if you could say scientific opinion. That's kind of a kind of an ironic statement, <laughs> just because of uh, reproductive, you know, reproductive capabilities, you lose too much fat, then you can compromise that. And, you know, if, if you're suffering from amenorrhea as a woman, you need to think about your bone mineral density too. throw in the fact that cycling is a, is a non-weight bearing exercise. It's, it's important to think about those things. So I think for the athlete, the purpose and the goal as well is going to dictate what you consume. And then, you know, a good coach is going to take into account, okay, I have a female versus a male. How do I go about maintaining a healthy body composition, changing body composition in a way where we're not compromising nutritional needs, meeting adequate nutritional needs, making sure there's adequate protein intake for men versus women based on their body composition, Mm -hmm. what gains they need to make, you know, am am I parsing out my macros appropriately? making sure, you know, iron intake is adequate for, for the females, um, electrolyte balance, um, things like that. So, uh, do you have any questions specific? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like if I could summarize and sort of recap, I mean, it sounds like the big difference is how men and women convert certain stores into energy during exercise in particular. And so it's less about what you have sort of you know, in your system at the time, but it's more about what you have before you start the workout. Is that, is that accurate to say? That's, I mean, that's true too. You do want to make sure, you know, if, if you have a hard training session coming up, of course, depending on what the training session is, you know, a couple hours before you want to consume, you know, five grams of carbs per kilogram. And then an hour before you want to make sure you consume carbohydrates too. So, you know, you have free glucose available for work. Right. Fat you're go- you're going to break down from adipose tissue or intermuscular triglyceride stores. So, it's not as essential that you're consuming fat, but especially with males too, you you have a predisposition to break down protein from muscle tissue into amino acids for fuel if you don't have an adequate amount of carbohydrate available. Where women don't necessarily have to worry about that as much because we can break down fat, we have more fat, convert that in the liver to glucose. Whereas, you know, males that have a really low body fat percentage do have a higher risk of catabolizing protein during a workout. So Hmm. proper carb loading pre and during exercise is absolutely important for for reasons of just being able to maintain power output. And then also, you know, you have the male versus female reasons, too. Yeah. Interesting. So we we talked about exercise metabolism and I want to ask you sort of how that's separate from just everyday metabolism. I mean, I think most of us are familiar with the term, 
we may not know exactly what it means, but we've, we've definitely heard it and know that it's sort of a factor in how you break down nutrition and also how you um, gain weight or lose weight. So how specifically, though, is sort of the nutritional need different for athletes versus someone who's just sort of living their life every day? Okay. Everyday metabolism, I think you could describe as just a balance between what your body uses through fuel catabolism or breakdown and what it processes through anabolism or constructive metabolism and the storage of fuel. So when you eat, the food that you eat is going to be broken down into, you know, the, the three smaller components that you store. So glucose into glycogen, mm -hmm. triglycerides will be broken down, free fatty acids, and, and they'll be stored in adipose tissue. And then, and then protein will be broken down into its amino acids forms and, and stored. And, and, and that's kind of the basics of that. And in, okay. in, in periods of fasting or during exercise, for example, you're going to be breaking down that stored fuel and using it. So catabolism... Let's talk about that for a second. That's, you know, your basic metabolic rate plus any activities of daily living, you're going to be breaking down fuel. And anything you burn sleeping, periods of fasting for protein synthesis to maintain muscle mass or build more proteins for whatever you need them for. Your body uses them for everything, essentially. Mm -hmm. Fuel you use to digest the food itself. So you actually burn calories digesting food. So that's catabolism. Is that uh, like people used to say that grapefruit has negative calories? Is that what they're talking about? Where it takes more to break it down than it than it actually has in it? Yep, celery, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So it's like five percent of your calories can be allocated to what you use to digest your food in a day. If you look at your basal metabolic rate overall. Okay, I like that. Yeah, it's kind of good. <laughs> <laughs> you can add all this stuff up and figure it out kind of based on your weight they you know if you you can have a really 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 vague estimate uh if i weigh 130 pounds i can assume about 1300 calories roughly is my basal metabolic rate for a healthy adult so yeah you need calories to stand talk chew gum rake leaves all of those things so anything stored you can break down to do that in any periods of, of fasting so anabolism would be the opposite. So after you consume food, uh, digest and absorb all the fuels delivered to muscle, your liver, adipose tissue for storage and for use later. So your everyday metabolism is a balance between catabolism and anabolism. And then, you know, if you go into calorie deficit or a, on a low calorie diet or things like that, where you're you're burning more fuel than you're consuming, exercise aside, then you have a higher balance of catabolic activity, you're, you're going to change your body composition that way. So that's kind of the basics exercise out of it. There are exercise metabolism in there and you can, you can kind of change the focus a bit to the catabolic form of, of fuel breakdown in order to do the higher rates of work that exercise requires because it's a stress on your body. Mm -hmm. It has a, a similar response in catecholamine release, cortisol response, things like that as other stressors. Um, in that sense, where fuel is broken down in preparation in a flight or flight way, but you're choosing to do it for health health reasons or as an athlete to compete and things like that. And then, of course, there's a recovery period where you're you're breaking down fuel to replenish those things until you consume more food. Hmm. So the nutritional needs associated with exercise metabolism is going to be dictated by a principle called the FIT principle, and then recovery needs. 
you know, nutritional timing and then, you know, what part of the season you're in too, you're going to eat differently off season than you are in the middle of race season. So the fifth principle is just the frequency, the intensity, time and type of exercise you're doing. How, how frequent are you exercising or training? What's the intensity of the type of training you're doing? Cause you can look at marathon bike racers and you can look at downhillers or mm-hmm. free ride mountain bikers. And it's a completely different way to train, right. different nutritional needs. So that's really important. Um, you're going to use fuel differently based on the, the type of exercise you're doing, the, the muscle recruitment patterns you're having, the type of muscle composition you have based on the type of athlete that you are. And then recovery, I think, is as important, if not more important than training in the sense that if you don't recover, you can't train. Mm, so that's yeah. that's something you need to take into account. So the nutritional needs of your recovery periods in between and then overall recovery. Yeah. So. Any athlete needs to eat for their training sessions, of course, pre, during, and post, you know, and you have to take immediate recovery recovery into account, adequate carbohydrate loading post-exercise along with protein, um, and then long-term recovery too. Yeah. Big periodization, of course, needs to be taken into account as well. Uh, Nutritional needs will change based on, you know, what block you're in of training uh, around race season, before racing, during, and after racing, if you're in season or out of season. If you change environments, so if you're traveling to altitude, you're going to need a higher carbohydrate need. If you're going into a hot environment, higher carbohydrate need, more hydration needs, higher electrolyte requirement. Mm -hmm. Your macros could change based on the type of exercise you're doing. Again, like the marathon racers versus, you know, downhill racers. Um, And then the age and fitness status too, um, male versus female. So your fitness status is, you know, obviously going to dictate how much fuel you're going to use based on, you know, the, your, your muscle composition mm-hmm. and then your age too. So someone that's, you know, 50 or 60, that's racing, is going to have a different nutritional requirement than, you know, a 20 year old that's either just getting into it or at the peak of what they're doing at their t- at the time of their life. So that those are all things that uh, a good coach needs to take into account, and then the, the the athlete themselves should be familiar with all of these things and how they feel. And if you're craving sugar and you're an athlete, you probably need to eat some more sugar. You know, so it, it sounds simple, but yeah. there are some simple things like that where um, you should pay attention to what your body's telling you too. Yeah, I like that. So moving beyond nutrition, let's talk a little bit about food. So it seems like we're always hearing about new studies regarding the health or the unhealth of certain foods. And often this seems like it can be contradictory. You know, one week we'll hear coffee is good for you. The next week we'll hear it's bad for you. So how do you look at these studies and what's sort of the best way to take all this into account when making decisions about what to eat? It is really hard, especially looking at fad diet advice, Mm -hmm. um, which is propelled by the internet age and the access to information. Mm -hmm. Personally, I take the time to read multiple perspectives because I know there's always more than one perspective, especially when it centers around new diets uh, and new diet advice. So this is the best diet for athletes because of X, Y, and Z, even though it may contradict something else that may have been around way longer. Mm-hmm. And there are always foundational nutritional targets for athletes. I think it's important for people to take the multiple perspectives into account and consider how new information is. If it's something new and it's blowing up in the media, consider the source and the reputation of the information. So 
everyone's familiar with like the grain brain and wheat belly stuff. There's books that came out on it. Does the actual journal science support what is being stated in the media or on forums yeah. um, in, in those books? And if yes, then you know, take the information seriously. If if not, or you're finding more conflicting information than than supporting information, then I, I would heed diving into it and changing your lifestyle based on, you know, something that's new. Yeah. Was the newness I mean, do we already have a pretty good idea about nutrition and diet and exercise and how that's all related? Or or is this a field where you're seeing a lot of like rapid growth and change in our understanding? I think there's both. I think we have a good foundation understanding diet and health. However, you can compare like a the the diet of the Inuits being heavy in saturated fat and then the like the French diet for example, um they they drink a lot of wine, they eat a lot of carbohydrates and they have a lot of saturated fat in their diet, yet their risk health-wise for cardiovascular disease is way lower than uh, in the Americans and uh, here in the United States, same with, you know, Italy, you have people that are proponents of a low, low carb diet yet in Italy, you know, 50% of their diet is carbohydrate based. So <laughs> yeah. uh, you have that conflicting information culturally, yet you have differences in chronic disease rates and you have to ask yourself, well, why? And a lot of that's based on the physical activity of the populations you're looking at. Um, and you know, you have old, older cultures that, you know, have cities that are built around walkability and things like that. And then you have the age of the car and the way we do things here that may be different. And some cities aren't at all, you know, you can live in downtown Boston maybe, and you live in an area where you can walk or ride your bike and you are physically active just in your day-to-day activities versus other places that aren't built like that. Or you, you live in, in a rural area and you have to drive an hour to work or you live in San Francisco and you can't afford to live downtown. So you have a commute where you're in your car three hours a day, which is normal for some people. And you don't have that time for physical activity. So diet becomes important. Yeah. I'm a big proponent for food over supplements. I think if you can get your nutrition from food over taking supplements like vitamins or or supplements like uh, unless you need to for dietary reasons or health reasons, you're you're going to get a more natural source of macro and micronutrients from food. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, we were talking about nutrition and obviously you take a very scientific view of it, um, you know, in terms of the proteins and the carbohydrates and things like that. But Sounds like you you also advocate real food over, you know, powders and drinks and pills and that sort of thing. Right. If you think the the source of food is nat- if, if it's natural food and like not processed processed food that is fortified with a lot of things and, and you know that's a whole that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. But if you think about a healthy balanced diet, um so one of the one of the most researched diets is the Mediterranean diet, and, and people have been talking about this for a long time, but the American Heart Association considers that to be one of the most researched and healthier diets for heart health. And if you if you think about cardiovascular disease being the number one cause of death for both men and women in the United States, it kind of makes sense that you, you may want to pay attention to what the research supports with that for health. Yeah, there's fat in that diet. Yeah, there's a lot. There's whole grains, fish. They even consider uh, consuming small to moderate amount of wine or mm. or beer as a part of that diet when you eat to be part of the the healthfulness of the diet. So, 
if you look at the research behind that and the and the and the activity of the people that consume that in the area where that diet is, you know, in the Mediterranean coast, they're they're a very very healthy group of people. So they're not relying on supplements to give them health per se. They're relying on a balance of again nutrients and food and you know their lifestyle overall to lend them to having good a good long life in the sense of health. If you apply this information to athletes, of course the needs of the athlete needs to be needs to be considered too. Any special considerations, personal or cultural, disease related, um, if somebody does not want to consume meat, things like that, you may need to obviously consume supplements as an athlete extra, extra protein, make sure, uh, you know, the diet is is structured well, so they, they aren't lacking in, say, a protein need or, or something like that. Frequency of training, the seriousness of the athlete, access to certain foods and socioeconomic status. Everybody would love to consume organic produce, uh, organic meat, but some people can't afford to do that. And that's just the reality. Right. Some people don't have access to local markets and things like that, or, or certain foods. So that needs to be taken into consideration by any coaches um, and the athlete too, to figure out how they could still consume a balanced diet and what they consider a balanced diet and any cultural things they want to include in that too, because everybody's different and has a different background and different belief systems. So right. it's way more complicated than just saying, here's a good diet, here's a bad diet. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot of conflicting information, good and bad data Good and bad studies. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about one specific thing that's gotten sort of a bad rap lately, and that's gluten. So you've written about this on Single Tracks and on your website as well. Mm-hmm. Is gluten bad for athletes or people in general, or is there something something else going on? I can't say gluten is bad. If I were to say gluten itself is a bad thing, I'd be lying. Well, it is delicious, so it's got that going for it. It's delicious. You can buy bags of gluten, extra gluten <laughs> at the grocery store. <laughs> so it's it has a purpose. It's found naturally in wheat, barley, and rye for a reason. It's just part of this, the structure of those particular grains. It's interesting kind of how it came about in the evolution of being another one of those things that grew exponentially quickly in the media. Um, and then, you know, people people follow things out of fear sometimes without, you know, and the research takes a long time to catch up. Yeah. To be fair, I mean, a lot of there are people that are highly allergic to it, I guess is the way you would say it and or sensitive to it. And then right. people have tried it as well. They've they've you know, gotten it out of their diets and they say they feel better. And so, sure. Yeah. It does, does seem to have some credence. It is. There is a lot of conflicting information in this particular topic. And I, you know, I'm still, it's still interesting to see how strong the, the topic is in, in kind of mainstream nutritional media and, and discussion too. Cause sometimes you'll hear things and then they go away right away. And other times they don't. And this is definitely still, discussed all the time. Is it bad for people in general? I think people can choose whatever to eat, whatever they want. Of course, it's up to them what they want to eat, what they believe is good for them and what they believe is not good for them. And, you know, barring diseases like celiac disease, um, celiac disease, IBS, which the jury is out on whether gluten does something good or bad for people that suffer from IBS. 
Crohn's disease, leaky gut syndrome, uh, indirectly related autoimmune disorders. If you have a wheat allergy, obviously you can't consume wheat, so your gluten intake is limited outside of things like, um, you know, barley and rye. But then you can look at cultures, again, like Italy, which has a high carbohydrate consumption, and they don't have nearly the rates of some of these diseases, but that could be a genetic difference in the wheat itself. So the genetic difference in wheat grown in Europe is substantially different than a lot of the wheat that's grown in the United States, even though they import a lot into Europe from the United States. But you hear of people going to Europe and consuming you know, wheat-based products there, bread, things that are locally made and grown, and they can consume it, even if they have an allergy, and then they come back here and they can't anymore. So that's, that's a, the plant genetic difference. Um, it's kind of an amazing thing if you think about it, related to gluten or not. I think to play devil's advocate against the gluten thing, um, it's bad for your pocketbook. <laughs> there is there is there is a, there is some evidence that shows there is a placebo effect associated with it, um, and then you know you have the concept of elimin- elimination diets, um, which can lead to more harm than good sometimes. So if you look at the price, one a lot of gluten free foods are upwards of three hundred to four hundred percent marked up, um, even even on foods that don't naturally contain gluten. Um, I mean, I've seen bags of fruit labeled gluten free and. Fruit doesn't have gluten in it. Right. Oh, my goodness. But it's a great mar- marketing tactic, and marketers are good at selling things if they're good marketers. So there's a gentleman, uh, Alan Levinovitz. He's a, a, a scholar and, and professor in uh, ancient Chinese religion, and he wrote a book a few years back called The Gluten Lie. And in his book, he goes through um, fear-based diets and, and regulation or elimination of certain things that people we're generally consuming, um, and then he 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 dives into whether or not good evidence based science supports you know the elimination or regulation of, of these things. And one of one of the one of the things is gluten, obviously. And um, he heeds in his book. If you haven't read this, I suggest reading it. Just it's just a good perspective that be careful of the people putting out the information Mm -hmm. versus making a huge dietary change. Yeah. Because elimination diets, I mean, if you're a generally healthy person, you don't have any chronic disease, it's not, it's not necessarily recommended for a healthy person to eliminate an entire food group. I mean, if you're eliminating gluten, you're eliminating wheat, barley, rye, not that you're not eating rice or oats or other things that naturally don't have it, but you can miss out on a lot of important micronutrients um, or under-consume uh, macronutrients like carbohydrates if your diet isn't balanced or constructed properly after eliminating, you know, say, gluten-containing foods. Trading one problem that isn't necessarily a problem for another, you know, is the risk uh, versus the benefit worth it if you're not careful on how you do that, especially as an athlete. I mean, some athletes may find it more difficult to attain carbohydrate needs if they're not careful in reconstructing their diet after eliminating gluten-containing foods, you know, a, a, a decently serious cyclist, suge- you know, you suggest they consume 50 to 65% of their macros from carbs. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a lot. That's, that's the majority of their diet. It's not half at least. So they need to make sure they make up for removing wheat and those things and other types of carbohydrates um, and sugars, especially during before and after exercise, anything around any training session or race, because if they're un- under consuming, especially males, they can catabolize muscle tissue. Um, you want to make sure they're fueled, you know, for maximum power output. So 
And then obviously recovery is important. So people, you know, personal choice to remove it. If you feel better, that's, that's awesome. If you have a disease, obviously you have to not consume that, but just be careful where people need to be careful where they get their information and, you know, they, they balance their diet properly. A lot of people will remove foods or follow diets and then also make other lifestyle changes too. And all of those factors together may give them more of a benefit than they would just if they, they took out one thing. So that's, that needs to be taken into account also. Well, yeah, eliminating gluten for a lot of mountain bikers would mean no pizza and beer. So I think some of us would go, we'd go very hungry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the studies I've always found interesting uh, links calorie intake restriction with increased lifespan. And obviously athletes in training need to take in a lot of calories to fuel themselves, which is really, that's the opposite of calorie restriction. And I remember this came up when we were talking with Mark Weir about how when he was training and sort of doing this, he did this million feet of climbing challenge one year and, you know, he's burning five to 7,000 calories a day and obviously needs to fuel himself a lot. So well, I mean, what are your thoughts about this? We tend to assume that athletes live longer than others, but could this like increased calorie consumption be bad for us? And if so, is there anything we can do to sort of mitigate it? That's it. It's an interesting. This is a, it's an interesting perspective. There's been a lot of a lot of research put into different theories of aging and intermittent fasting and caloric restriction. Um, is one of one of the big theories of aging in reference to metabolic rate. So you decrease your metabolic rate uh, to a certain point, and you can uh, better regulate your immune system, um, decrease carbohydrate use, and therefore the thought is you can increase lifespan to a point. Overall, healthier life, exercise impacting the immune system as well. There, there's obviously research that supports, you know, people that do a moderate amount of exercise, moderate intensity exercise most days of the week, as recommended by the Surgeon General, the AHA, um, ACSM. Mm-hmm. It's good for your immune system. It's good for your body in general to move, as does caloric restriction uh, in the in the in the sense of intermittent fasting and things like that for similar reasons. So you can kind of look at them in a similar way to a point. So Hmm. the study that you uh, linked through uh, discussing uh, improved uh, P38 regulation and FOXO proteins, I can explain that a little bit for the listeners. So uh, FOXO proteins help dictate glucose metabolism. You know, when, when they're optimally regulating what they regulate, which is a slew of things, you have a reduction in carbohydrate use during periods of fasting. Hmm. Um, they regulate your cell cycle, so reproduction and death of cells, so that whole uh, cyclic growth and death uh, of cells throughout your lifespan. Uh, energy balance, they regulate oxidative stress uh, resistance, um, so resistance to lysing and death of cells due to uh, oxidative stress. Um, they regulate tumor suppression, um, regulate risk of cancer, lower your metabolic rate, Decrease appetite um, and the theory of aging that suggests a lower metabolic rate can increase lifespan mm-hmm. with credibility be- because of, of what we know through, you know, protein regulation and genetic regulation based on, on, on some of this stuff. So 
they have looked into okay so how to how does exercise uh is there is there a certain amount of exercise that is the best okay and they they there's several studies that point to uh moderate intensity exercise is the best for immune response and longevity prolonged endurance exercise so it's like a kind of like a bell curve yeah uh prolonged endurance exercise frequent heavy exertion may lead to increased risks of infection for 72 hours. It's called the open window theory. So it kind of counteracts the, the benefits of, say, fasting or, or moderate intensity exercise with this open window where your risk of infection goes up if you're doing prolonged or frequent heavy exertion for a long period of time. Studies so, show a suppression of macrophage resistance to viral infections, for example, um, within that window, um, uh, decrease natural killer, killer cell cytotoxicity activity uh, to prevent infection and things like that. So it is definitely a, a balance. Moderation is key in, in, in almost everything, uh, exercise included. Um, so, I, it, it, again, it goes back to, okay, how much are you doing? Are you recovering from this? Especially if you're on that the opposite end of the bell curve, where you where you're practicing prolonged endurance exercise for a long period of time without taking off seasons or you know properly constructing uh, blocks and then training sessions within those blocks of exercise. I, I like how you sort of tied that into intermittent fasting because that's another thing that seems to be becoming more popular. We're hearing more about that. And it doesn't seem like it's a great thing for athletes necessarily, but it is kind of related, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of related. I think I think it depends on goals too. Um, a big focus in cycling, for example, power to weight ratio. I mean, you always want to be careful not to compromise recovery and therefore lean muscle mass gains because you're not consuming enough protein or carbohydrate for synthesis and gains from what you just did and worked your butt off for, right? Um, especially for, for males, which have a higher proponent for, you know, muscle catabolism if, you know, carbohydrate intake isn't high enough. Same with other, you know, enough of other macronutrients to not continue muscle catabolism, uh, for amino acid conversion to make up for inadequate carbon fat consumption. So if you are fasting to a point where you're not consuming enough to make up for the, what you burned during exercise and used, and then, for recovery in order for you to make gains, uh, you know, muscle hypertrophy, you know, replenish any stores that you're used, then you could be, you could be in a, in a negative deficit. And then, then you risk overtraining and all, all the stuff that goes along with that. And that's, that's a whole nother bad area to find yourself in. Yeah. Interesting. So clearly nutrition and exercise go hand in hand in terms of health uh, but does one win out over the other in terms of outcomes? I know for me, I, I'm very active. You know, I bike and run and commute by bike to the office every day. And so I burn a ton of calories, but I also like drink Mountain Dew. And that doesn't seem like it's the best thing. But I, but I always tell myself it's okay because I exercise. But is that is that fair to say that like one is better than the other? You can sort of make up for doing the wrong thing on one side by focusing on the other? There's a lot of interesting research in this area. Uh, they're both obviously important, right, mm -hmm. for health and then obviously to fuel exercise. 
bad diets can be partially ameliorated by exercise, uh, in particular aerobic exercise. So, um, I don't necessarily think a good diet can make up for a sedentary lifestyle. You know, we have standing desks now, um, or breaks, uh, you know, moderated breaks, uh, throughout the workday for reasons. Plenty of studies show benefits, um, with, uh, controlled caloric intake for different types of diets, healthy and unhealthy. And then, you know, looking at, okay, this, this group of people was sedentary and this group of people got, you know, a 10 minute break every hour. And this group of people, um, were able to move around throughout the workday. And then, you know, if you control the diet and even in a healthy diet, the, the people that move the most, generally speaking, have the best, you know, lipid profiles and things like that, regardless of, you know, not regardless of the diet, but it's the, the, the exercise groups typically win out. Yeah. Huh. The one thing you don't get from a diet is just the sheer stress within your vasculature. So sheer stress is kind of taking a look at the way blood flows through your vasculature. So when you start exercising, blood flow increases. So the velocity at which the blood flow increases puts an extra stress along the blood vessel wall, which can lead to a cascade of benefits um, in response. So you're going to have decreased e-selectin response and therefore a decreased tendency for things to stick to the blood vessel wall. And so therefore a decreased plaque buildup and then a decreased risk for atherosclerosis. So moving around is a benefit in that sense. And that's something you can't get from diet per se, because you, you, movement does one thing, diet does another thing. Now, obviously, if you have a healthy diet and you're not consuming a bunch of terrible things, then that's a benefit too. And that, you know, that's obvious. But hmm. there are a couple of interesting studies. Dr. Kim Huffman in 2012 uh, published a study looking at vigorous exercise having positive effects on lipid profiles in sedentary populations when they consume diets that varied from American Heart Association healthy diet guidelines. So um, they looked at low-density lipoprotein or LDL cholesterol particle number and density. So both of those proponents are important in understanding uh, LDL levels being healthy or unhealthy in a person. And then HDL or high-density lipoprotein, which people, you know, you can consider a good cholesterol, and then your triglyceride levels. And so they found that even with a, a varied diet and diets that weren't necessarily within healthy guidelines, according to the AHA, there were still positive effects on all these uh, lipid numbers uh, when these sedentary individuals were conducting vigorous exercise. There was another study in 2013 published in the Journal of Applied Physiology where, you know, the, the study pretty much stated that regular physical activity can ameliorate any pathophysiological effects, so negative symptoms of high-fat diets uh, like uh, glycemic control, um, visceral fat accumulation, just by regular physical activity. Um, so that's not going on riding your bike for two hours. That's, you know, taking a walk for 45 minutes. So there, there's a lot of support for, you know, exercise kind of combating negative, negative effects or, um, you know, you, you can drink your Mountain Dew all day and ride your bike enough. You're probably okay as opposed to somebody that doesn't ride a bike. <laughs> right. But it's still not the optimal, right? I mean, I'm sure it's, there's something better I could be putting in my body than Mountain Dew. Yeah. There's not, there are not many calories in Mountain Dew, Jeff. 
or, or excuse me, nutrients in Mountain Dew. There's a lot of calories, but yeah, empty calories. It's plenty right? of yellow number five. I think that's, that's a vitamin. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so what I hear you saying through almost all of this is that moderation is key, both in exercise and nutrition. So I'm curious though, is there an example of anything sort of in the nutrition or exercise world that doesn't fit this mold? Is there anything that we can just like go crazy on, whether it's a food or a, an exercise or something like that? Or, or is, is, does that not exist? You know, I had to think about this and I don't know. I hate to say that, but that's my honest answer. Yeah, it sounds like for the big ones, I mean, exercise, it's it's not about going out and, you know, just running 100 miles every night. Yeah. That's not good for you, then nothing is. There's there's always a balance. I, can't, I wish I could think of it. It's off of the top of my head. There's a gentleman, I remember reading an article about a gentleman that takes 100 pills a day. Oh, right. Yeah, the Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, in a sense, to see if he could live forever. And so... Obviously, that's an excessive thing to do, and he's not going to live forever because 100% of us die. So well, he hasn't been wrong yet. He's still he alive as far yet. as I know. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you have the extremes like that, and is, is it doing something good for him? That's, a, that's an interesting question. So is there something that you can eat all of or do, do without moderation? That, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know things like... You know, we're even questioning the need for multivitamins, and that's been around for a while now. Excess antioxidants, you know, can, you know, for athletes can cut gains because they're combating necessary signals. Consuming vitamin C and vitamin E post-workout, which a lot of people do, is going to, you know, kill the signal for your body to, you know, grow mitochondria and, and, and have mitochondrial biogenesis. So, that's a common misconception that, you know, eat a, eat, a, eat a gram of vitamin C after exercise, it's going to help your gains. It's actually going to do worse for you. I already kind of talked about getting macro and micro nutrients from food over supplements. A lot of people will take supplements to make sure they are getting enough of something. Right. But if you have a balanced diet, shouldn't need to do that outside of maybe, you know, more protein. Like I take protein supplement. I take BCAAs. I'll take a pre-workout depending on what I'm doing every once in a while. But that's that's about it. There are naturally occurring uh, enantiomers. It's chirality of molecules. It kind of gets into the biochemistry. But the biologically useful version of a molecule, um, like D-alpha tocopherol versus L-alpha tocopherol, you're going to get both in a synthetic vitamin E versus naturally sourced vitamin E from, say, salmon, or you know, L-isoleucine versus D-isoleucine. Your body uses l isoleucine and the L versions of most amino, the, the essential amino acids. So you don't want to consume the other because it's not, it's not really useful in, in the sense of what it requires to build proteins. So there's that part of it. Um, overeating or undereating imbalanced macros, too many antioxidants, not consuming enough electrolytes with water. You can overconsume water and become hyper, hypovolemic, which is not necessarily a good thing. Um, you've heard of people dying from that. Yeah. Carbohydrates, maybe one thing people don't consume enough of. Ketogenic diets and power, for example. Um, Outside Magazine actually published an interesting article in 2016 on physician Tim Noakes from South Africa who kind of fathered this concept, um, pushing for a low-carb or the keto, a keto, a ketogenic diet. Obviously, for like ultra runners and things like that, 
it's a great diet. For someone that requires power, there have been studies that don't support that diet for somebody that's a sprinter or something like that, or somebody that requires carbohydrates or creatine phosphate to to provide them with bursts of bursts of power just because your muscles don't do that. You know what I mean? And then of course the exercise bell curve relationship, uh, overtrading. Yeah. It sounds like everything has a bell curve basically. I mean, there's like the optimal amount and you can go too far on it and it's, it's could be detrimental to you. Right. I mean, when it comes down to it, exercise or not training or not being an athlete or just trying to be healthy at the end of the day, everybody ages. It just depends on how quickly you want to age, how long do you want to prevent onset of chronic disease, you know, through cellular protection and positive feedback loops, you know, affecting antioxidant transcription factors, you know, that's higher in athletes, you know, as body adapts to conditions of exercise, it's subjected to, you know, you need to fuel that to remain healthy because you, you can exercise and not fuel yourself properly. It kind of goes back to your previous question, and then you can go into overtraining or being malnourished. And then, you know, what gains you're going to get from that? What's the point in the end? So it's probably safe to say that most adults know generally what good nutrition looks like. But why do you think it's hard for people to get it right and to eat healthy? Do you think it's easier today to eat healthily than it has been in the past? I think it's easier to eat healthier today because people have access to information they have access to healthier foods, locally grown foods, farmers markets, things like that. Absolutely. I think some difficulties may arise from like burdens of societal expectations, push for competition, yeah. performing a certain way, looking a certain way. Um, there's also the death of the expert. And I say that in a, in a way that, yeah, there's access to information, which is great. But at the same time, there's an overwhelming amount of information on the internet and people don't know where to get their education because you can educate yourself, but based on what you're educating yourself with, you could be completely miseducated too. Um, so people used to rely on experts, hiring a coach, registered dietitians, not that they don't anymore, but a lot of people will do their own research and there's a lot of forums out there and a lot of research out there that doesn't, that don't necessarily cite good information or good studies or, you know, and it's harder to learn how to read research studies. So most people don't go to, you know, JAP or, you know, British Journal of Pharmacology or something like that, because it takes practice to learn how to read that. And, yeah. you know, they rely on books and, and other people to be truthful, you know, and even some of the books are founded on poorly researched or under-researched claims or written by People that aren't necessarily experts in a field yet, mm -hmm. anyone can pass a personal trainer certification. You have nutritionists that call themselves nutritionists that may have taken a nutrition class, but they're interested in it and they like it, you know, or coaches that pass down information because it worked for them, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're educated in a way that they are passing down, you know, the best educated information to others. So there's positives and, and negatives to the information aspect. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a difference between eating healthy and then consuming for performance too. And it's difficult to delineate maybe what you need from where you're starting off. Like I started mountain biking and getting into cycling and I was already really fit. And there are other people that just want to get into the sport to just become healthy and maybe they're sedentary and they're going to need to fuel themselves differently and look at food differently than I may have had to day one on a bike. Mm 
So asking yourself maybe what your goal is can put you in uh, the right area to start off in. And then you build habits from there. You know, if you just want to enjoy riding and enjoy food, then enjoy riding and enjoying food and don't waste money on supplements unless you need to for a health-related reason. If you're really serious, then consult a coach or an RD, you know, get a good, you know, food-based plan together that follows training periodization. You know, that's that's what I would recommend. And it'll help you put you in the right direction. And then, you know, a lot of people worry so much about the the tiny little things. And unless you're a, a higher level athlete, uh, higher level competitions, um, it could take the enjoyment out of riding in the first place. Hmm, so yeah. could always keep that at the forefront. Like, why were you doing this in the first place? Because it's fun and it kicks ass. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, after our conversation, though, it's clear to me, you know, I guess, my hope and maybe what a lot of people hope is like, there's, there's an answer, right? That, you know, somebody will tell you, this is what you should, and this is what you shouldn't. But based on our conversation, it's, it's more obvious to me than ever that it is complicated because everybody's different and everybody has different needs and different requirements. And, uh, so it's not the type of thing that, that you can do like a one size fits all solution for everybody's got a they got to do some of the research themselves or at least find someone that they trust to work with and, and help them figure it out. Right. Yeah. Asking questions, reaching out to just reaching out to, to a coach or, you know, somebody that's been doing it for a while. If you have a friend that's been cycling for a long time and you, and you say you want to get into it, or if you're, uh, you know, more and more serious than reaching out to to a coach or someone that has access to a coach is, is always easy. And, and there, there is, there are mathematics and there are recommendations. I mean, how much you should be consuming based on what you're doing. Like a well-trained athlete we know can store up to 24 grams of glycogen per kilogram muscle mm-hmm. plus a, another hundred grams or so in the liver. So we know based on those numbers, how much carbohydrate the athlete should be consuming overall based on stores and we can figure out, okay, what do they burn in each training session? And then what do they need to do to make gains? So based on, you know, their racing goals and their season, same with protein, to throw more numbers out there, you have, you know, athletes consuming one and a half grams per kilogram body weight for, for typical athletes, or that would be about 70 kilograms or 155 pound male. So that's about 150 grams of protein. So that's another target you could, you could think about. Um, and then, you know, what's left over is fat. So that's about 20 to 30% of fat, depending on the type of athlete. So like a a marathon mountain biker, someone doing 24 hour races and things like that would be different as far as their fat requirement and, and, you know, the recovery needs than, you know, someone again, doing, you know, shorter races or downhilling or something like that. So, an example would be like a 60-20-20 diet, so 60% carbohydrate, 20% protein, 20% fat, and that's the macros, but it'd be a good place to start for somebody that doesn't have any base at all in this, and then you know they can adjust their macros after that. And another thing people forget about is hydration, because that's just as important as what you're consuming as far as food. Mm-hmm especially with electrolyte balance, um, not, and it's not just sodium and potassium, you're losing calcium and, and, and magnesium, um, through sweat. And those are important anabolic minerals to, to help recover, um, at night. So, you know, all of that needs to be taken into account, um, uh, especially if you're, if you're serious, um, in order to progress. Very good. Well, yeah, thank you so much. I know I've learned a ton and I'm sure that our listeners have as well. Yeah, thank you very much, Jeff. This is great. 
So if you want to learn more or find out how to connect with Jenny, you can check her out on her website, truefizz.com. That's T-R-U-P-H-Y-S.com. And you can also search single tracks for some of the articles she's written over the years. That's all I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.